Welcome to the Apostles Houston podcast, and thanks for listening. As a community following Jesus in Houston, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things Jesus did. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we invite you to join us for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. in Houston Heights. For more information, visit us online at ApostlesHouston.org. As we continue to worship uh, this morning, again, I'm so grateful uh, for you, brother, just being willing to come and bring God's word to us. So uh, let me pray for you. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for Jack. Uh, Lord, I thank you for what you have done in his life, the testimony of grace. Uh, Lord, your love for him and, Lord, that you've moved in his heart to bring us a word uh, about you, Jesus, this morning. So we just pray your blessing. Holy Spirit, fill him, empower him, and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Howdy, Apostles. In 1983, uh, Diana and I moved to the Clear Lake area to launch from scratch a Young Life ministry at Clear Lake High School. Now, most of y'all are familiar with Young Life, but just to So the record's clear, Young Life is an outreach ministry to high school-aged young people. Cultural anthropologists have confirmed that high school kids in the 1980s were free-range adolescent human beings. They had moxie, swagger, chutzpah, mullets, mole bangs, and a lot of autonomy. 1980s teenagers were entirely different breed than our modern-day, risk-adverse, compliance-oriented, social media-afflicted, homebody teenagers. Raise your hand if you were, or if you knew, a teenager in the 1980s. (laughs) You folks know what I'm talking about, but if you don't know what I'm talking about, I suggest you watch a very informative documentary called Ferris Bueller's Day Off. (laughs) So back in the old days, before lawyers literally ruined everything, school administrators welcomed Young Life leaders onto campus during the lunch hour. So a couple of days each week, I would marshal my courage and go into the socially complex an emotionally perilous realm of the Clear Lake High School cafeteria. Now, prior to my get-rich job with Young Life, I had been a Dallas police officer patrolling the main streets of West Dallas. I was more nervous going into the high school lunchroom as a Young Life leader than I ever was kicking down doors in Dallas as a police officer. For those lunchroom incursions, my M.O. was as follows. I would pray like crazy and then force myself out of my truck and into the building. And then I would survey this cafeteria and I would move towards a table where I knew somebody or possibly knew of somebody based on my careful, meticulous, contemplative study of the yearbook from the prior year. 
And then I would sit down at the table like I own the place. And I would strike up an amiable conversation about how many push-ups I could do in a minute or the sweet rumble of a 1973 GMC 454 V8 engine with dual exhaust or something equally esoteric uh, in the minds of a high school-aged lad back in the day. By God's grace, I actually end up making a few friends with this dubious methodology. So one day in December of 1983, very close to the Christmas break, I sat down uh, at the debate team lunch table. I love debaters. And debaters, of course, love to argue. And the Clear Lake High School debate team was a formidable squad. And I suddenly found myself in an exchange with a debater that went something like this. And I'll have to play both roles in this dialogue. You're the Young Life guy, right? Yep. So you actually believe in the Bible? Are you asking me if I believe the Bible exists? No. Do you really believe in what the Bible says about Jesus? Yep. Even the virgin birth? Yep. And you believe in the virgin birth even though that the Hebrew text does not say anything at all about a virgin giving birth? That Matthew or the author of Matthew actually intentionally distorted and misquoted the Hebrew text to serve some purpose of propaganda? Do you want to arm wrestle? <laughs> no, I want you to answer my question. Okay. Here's your answer. Your question presupposes a fact, not an evidence, and therefore I object. It's true, the Hebrew word alma in Isaiah 7:14 refers generally to a young woman of marriageable age. And it's also true there is a more precise term in the language of biblical Hebrew for virgin, Bethulah. But it also is significant that Isaiah, in his passage, in his prophecy, does not use the general Hebrew term for woman, Isha, or the general Hebrew term for girl, Na'ara. And of course, every educated person knows this has to do with a unique reality about biblical prophecy, where there is often a more immediate temporal fulfillment, and there is a deeper ultimate fulfillment to be found in the eschaton, or much later. The semantic range of Alma 
is actually quite narrow. And of course, if you were a young woman of marriageable age, back in ancient Israel, there was a strong evidentiary presumption that you were in fact a virgin. So what we find here is the ultimate what we find here is the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah was most likely uh, uh, found uh, in a young woman who at the time of the prophecy was a virgin, but at the time of her conception uh, and birth was not a virgin. But of course, the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy is found with Mary, who in fact was a virgin when she conceived and gave birth. And of course, every educated person knows that what Isaiah was quoting accurately was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, which predated Jesus by several hundred years. And the rabbis who quoted, I mean, the rabbis who translated this were quite knowledgeable about Hebrew, maybe even more than you, high school debater, and they used the word parthenos, and they translated it accurately and providentially. So there is no misquotation of the Hebrew prophecy in the Greek New Testament. Thank you for asking. As I paused to catch my breath, I noted that the whole debate team spontaneously accepted Jesus into their argumentative little hearts. <laughs> well, not, not exactly at that time. So I told you that slightly embellished, but substantially uh, historically true story, because our readings today present what some see as the problem of the pregnant Parthenos, the pregnant virgin. But what we joyfully celebrate as, to borrow a descriptive term from C.S. Lewis, the grand miracle. So our passage today, and I'm, you've heard it read uh, properly now, the New Jack translation uh, is what I'm going to read to you uh, from Matthew 1, 18 through 23. The birth of Jesus, the Messiah, happened this way. After Jesus' mother was betrothed, which means super seriously engaged to Joseph. But before they came together, it was discovered that Mary was pregnant. Note parenthetically that the source and agent of the conception was the Holy Spirit. Joseph was not aware of this parenthetical fact, and he was a righteous man. He did not want to disgrace Mary publicly, so he was planning to dissolve the betrothal in a non-public way. After Joseph was sorting out this lamentable scenario, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because her pregnancy is the work of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, behold, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, a.k.a. God is with us. So, with this passage, and I'm so grateful to have the chance to talk to you for a few minutes about this amazing passage, I'm just going to attempt uh, to... Discipline myself and make four and only four observations. 
And the first observation uh, is this. And if you get and retain just one of the four observations, in other words, if I as a preacher simply bat 250, this will have been a successful sermon. So I hope that one of these lands with some of y'all. Observation number one, the pregnant Parthenos always has been perceived as a problem. Even though a colorable argument may be made that human beings have been getting dumber and dumber every year for the last 60 years, we tend towards chronological snobbery. We certainly look on the people of antiquity as pre-submitted, pre-scientific rubes who would fall for anything. And of course, in 2022, we confidently tell ourselves that we know how babies are made because of science. So we will not fall for the absurd notion of a virgin conception and birth. I do not know how to break this newsflash to my internet atheist friends, so I'll just put it this way. Joseph, a craftsman from a small town in the middle of nowhere in the early part of the first century, absolutely knew how babies are made and how babies always have been made. He knew it. Everybody knew it. That is why Joseph resolved to end the betrothal due to what apparently had been an act of betrayal. It took a direct angelic intervention to change his perspective. The idea that the Christian evangelists, the, 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 the men who wrote the Gospels, uh, Matthew and Luke, years after the events in question, as some scholars uh, want to tell us, appropriated a pagan myth of a virgin birth and applied it to Jesus. This theory cannot stand up to even casual scrutiny, much less rigid historical analysis. Why make up a story that you know will be offensive to the very people you want to persuade? And the story of a virgin conception and birth is, would have been highly offensive to everyone that Matthew or Luke wanted to persuade about Jesus. Nobody wanted to hear it. Nobody was hungry for this kind of news. Not, not Greeks, not Jews, nobody. N.T. Wright has noted how the virgin birth story would have triggered, that's a postmodern term, but you know what he meant, triggered a negative reaction in Matthew's intended readership. Now, for a full explication of this question by a highly credentialed and entertaining a philosopher using the tools of literary and historical analysis. You can check out the work of Dr. Lydia McGrew, much of which is accessible online. The bottom line is clear. If you read the Gospels with an anti-supernatural presupposition, then you will inevitably conclude that the virgin conception and birth did not happen because such things do not happen and such things cannot happen. For a thoughtful critique of this closed-minded presuppositional approach, please refer to C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles. My takeaway on this first observation is this. Belief in the virgin birth is defensible and nothing to be squeamish about. You can follow up and do your own research. Observation number two. 
The virgin birth is not the origin story of the Son of God. I've always suspected that Diana uh, married me because of my vintage 1960s comic book collection. Every old school comic book fan can tell you the origin stories for Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, and the Hulk, to name a few. So if I mention gamma rays, you will know I am referring to the origin story of which tragic muscular green figure. Anyone? Yes. You're a highly sophisticated group of Anglicans, no doubt about it. So when I was a kid, my main sources on the meaning of Christmas were smatterings of a few carols and a Charlie Brown cartoon. I viewed the Christmas story as the origin story of the superhero called Jesus, the Son of God. My childhood perspective was slightly defective. Every week here at Apostles, we confess our faith in the Trinitarian God, who is eternal loving communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When the psalmist says, Yahweh, your faithful love is from everlasting to everlasting, or when the apostle John tells us that God is love, these biblical authors are talking about the love that always exists in the present tense and never did not exist between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son did not begin to exist at the conception of Jesus. That is when the eternal Lagos became a flesh and blood human being in time and space. We confess that Jesus is fully God and fully a human being. This is the mystery of the incarnation that began with the virgin conception. Gregory of Thaumaturgus, a third century preacher in a very entertaining and somewhat funny sermon, Frame the issue with a startling question and a candid observation. Can the womb contain him who cannot be contained in space? Truly, this is a dread mystery. Of course, the question of when human life begins is not a mystery. Human life begins at the moment of conception. A lot of people, for ideological reasons, do not want to hear this, but the science is settled. Consider, for example, the sworn testimony of Dr. Jerome Lejeune, the celebrated geneticist who discovered the chromosome pattern of Down syndrome. He testified, quote, after fertilization has taken place, a new human being has come into being. He stated that this is, quote, a no longer a matter of taste or opinion, and, quote, not a metaphysical contention. It is plain experimental evidence. He added, each individual has a very neat beginning at conception. This point is reinforced by Dr. Micheline Matthews Roth of Harvard University Medical School, uh, who writes, quote, It is incorrect to say that biological data cannot be decisive. It is scientifically correct to say that an individual human life begins at conception. Close quote. So what we see in Scripture is that the human life of the eternally begotten Son of God began at the moment of conception within the body of a young woman with no social capital in the bogus world system. This is the grand miracle. 
Observation number three. The story of Jesus' conception and birth tells us just how with us God really is. So in our gospel reading today, we find an explanation for two names. The angel says, you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is the English rendering of the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew contraction of the divine name Yahweh and the word to save or rescue. So you will name him, quote, Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. Now, Jesus, uh, Yeshua, was a common name reflecting the deep hope and expectation that God would rescue his people from the consequences of their shalom-wrecking rebellion. The Son of God fulfills that hope and expectation. The second name in our reading reveals what God rescues us for. God rescues us from sin and for communion, for love that defeats death, for our shared participation in the eternal love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is why Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. This is not sloganeering or wishful thinking. He is with us and he is for us and he invites us to be with him and in him. So I could go on and on about this, but I cannot improve on the way Stephen Boyer and Christopher Hall put it in their book, The Mystery of God. Think about these words. God becomes a man. The highest entity there is, not just the highest creature, but the incomprehensible reality that creates all creatures. The highest sovereign, who is above all we can conceive, becomes the lowest, not just a man, but a boy, and before that, an infant, and before that, an embryo, and before that, a single fertilized cell, or again, not just a man, but a peasant, and then a despised criminal, and then a corpse in a tomb. From every angle, this kind of colossal descent is almost unfathomable, and it is matched on the other side by an equally colossal ascent. For the Christian teaching is that humanity is rescued by being placed in Christ, by dying with him, by inheriting a new kind of resurrection life, by being seated in the heavenlies with God himself. This, this is a clear declaration of what God has saved us for. He's rescued us from sin, but he's rescued us for this love that cannot be defeated by death. For the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And God invites us into that love today. Finally, fourth point. The virgin conception initiates the new creation. The shalom of God's good creation has been vandalized by human sin. In Romans 5.12, Paul writes that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all people because all sinned. In Romans, we learn that all of us are in the same boat and the entire creation groans for redemption. God's mission is to restore communion with us 
and to make all things new. By grace, God invites us to participate in the new creation in Jesus Christ. The new creation begins, began with the virgin conception. As Joseph Ratzinger puts it, what is happening here in Mary is new creation. The God who called forth being out of nothing makes a new beginning amid humanity. His word becomes flesh. So we find, therefore, that in the corruption of the bogus world system, we have dehumanized ourselves and one another, and that is sin. The Greek term for sin is hamartia, which means to miss the target. And the target we have missed is God's creative purpose for us, which is to be fully human beings in loving communion with our Creator and with one another. Who in his or her right mind doesn't want that? God becomes fully human so we can hit that target. Again, I will let Boyer and Hall take it from here. Since the problem began with humanity, the healing also is to begin with humanity. And so God himself becomes a man. In Christ, we see the untarnished, fully developed humanity we are all intended to be. Christ is the consummate image of God, the new second Adam, who was everything the first Adam failed to be, the new Adamic DNA that is injected into creation at the incarnation is simultaneously and in a mystery the Creator's DNA. It is united with the Creator's own personal life. Thus, in Christ, we see and are drawn into the Divine Son's love for His exalted Father in the Spirit. And again, we see and are drawn into the Son's sacrificial love for His creaturely brothers and sisters. Until a few minutes ago, I didn't know how to end this sermon, which would have been bad news for y'all because <laughs> I've got a lot more to say. <clears throat> but then I heard Ryan's uh, reflection on Psalm 24. So in Psalm 24, uh, we find this poetic declaration of this triumphal moment when a conquering king enters a city. And, and the psalmist uh, writes, uh, Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, ancient doors, so that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? Me, Edze, Belek, Hakavod. Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Yahweh, Gibor, Milhama. Excuse the trailer park Hebrew, but this is a great moment in Scripture. And, of course, the king of glory, the king of glory who condescended uh, uh, to reside in the womb of a peasant woman in the middle of nowhere, to show how fully with us he was. The king of God, I mean, the king of glory, uh, who condescended uh, to what appeared to be a humiliating defeat on the battle of the cross, the, for our sakes, to rescue us from our sin, from our dehumanizing conduct. That king of glory, he does not need an invitation to go anywhere he wants to go. And yet the psalmist says, lift up your head, O gates. Be lifted up, ancient doors. Open the doors. The king of glory 
who could kick down any door, is waiting for the gates to be opened. Now, there's two kinds of people here today. There are people here today who, at some point in their lives, have said a decisive yes to the King of glory. They have heard the good news of the, of the condescension, the descent of God, and the ascent of God in the resurrection in which we can participate. And there are people here today who've probably never said a decisive yes to open their hearts to the King of glory. But those of you who've said a decisive yes and those of you who've never said a decisive yes have exactly the same opportunity today and right now, which is to say yes. Because the right thing to do every day is to open your heart to the King of glory. Is to say yes to the love of God that's expressed in the incarnation uh, and the cross. And to embrace the power of God that is demonstrably put on display in the resurrection. And then to participate in the love of God that always exists in the present tense between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That's an invitation that's open to every human being, every moment of every day. And so why not now? Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope this resource has been helpful to you. If you have questions or are just looking for more information, you can check out our website at apostleshouston.org.